Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australia's city shaping infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, and I'll be joined for the main portion of the show by my co-host Ilya Zak from our series sponsor PwC Australia. Recently, Ilya and I sat down with WA Minister for Transport and Planning, Rita Safiotti, to discuss the WA Government's infrastructure response to COVID-19, WA's pathway to recovery, and the nexus between land use planning and transport infrastructure. It was a great chat, so here it is. So, Minister Rita Safiotti, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Good afternoon. We would love to be doing this um, face-to-face, but unfortunately COVID-19 has meant that we're trialling a bit of technology, and um, for those listening along, we've got... A video connection between us and an audio connection. So we're going to try and do our best not to talk over each other today. I thought in the first instance, Minister, it might be useful for you to perhaps introduce yourself and um, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm Rita Safiotti, the Minister for Planning and Transport in the West Australian McGowan Government, have been the Minister for since 2017 and have been an elected member of Parliament since 2008. And um, you spent most of your career across... Um, government in the bureaucracy and in politics. Um, can you maybe just talk us a little bit through that, just to give us a sense of, of how you got to getting into Parliament in 2008 and then the ministerial career after that? Sure. So um, I studied economics at university, at Curtin University. Upon graduating, I um, took a position, a graduate graduate position up with the Department of Finance in Canberra. So I'm not sure if they still run it, but Department of Treasury and Finance run, and a lot of other federal agencies run graduate um, programs. And so I moved to Canberra after I finished university. And um, there it was really quite interesting. I got really involved in, you know, basically helping prepare the federal budget and looking at public policy. So it was a very, very interesting job. And in the graduate position, you actually get exposed to a lot of different sector parts of the Department of Finance. And so whether it was um, looking at uh, fiscal policy, whether it was looking at monetary policy, whether it was looking at just spending um, uh, programs, it was a good exposure. Then I moved back to WA and worked with the Department of Finance in the regional office. I was a bit homesick from for WA. So I moved back and then I got a job in the Department of Treasury um, in WA. So do you, you would self-identify as an economist? A public policy economist, yeah. So uh, so that's what I was trained in and that's what I worked in, um, both in the bureaucracy. In 1997, the then leader of the opposition, Jeff Gallup, um, advertised for a research officer job in his office. And I applied for that job and I didn't get the initial job, but I got a job a few months later. And then I became his economics advisor. So Jeff Gallup, when he was leader of the opposition, um, recruited me and I worked in his office as an economics advisor, research officer, um, until we won the 2001 election. And then I became uh, the advisor, economics advisor in the Premier's office post then. So, and then I worked in the department for a while. I also then became chief of staff to the next Premier, Alan Carpenter. And then I um, sought and won pre-selection for my seat of West Swan in 2008. And I won that um, election in that seat. And from 2008 to 2013, um, I wasn't a shadow minister. I was a member of the Parliamentary Accounts Committee, for example. I also, um, during that time, had three children. So I had a, a, a girl in 2010 and then I had twins in 2000 
and 11. And then 2013 to 2017, I became a shadow minister, uh, first for planning and finance, and then I um, also picked up transport. And then 2017, we won the election. I held uh, a, sig a significant portfolio of planning, transport and lands. And then um, there, was a there was a reshuffle or there was some uh, reallocation and land I didn't keep lands or ports because the, the bundle of portfolios was probably uh, far too big at the time. So <laughs> planning and transport is still very big and there's a lot of things happening in WA. I assume that because you said you had a girl in 2010 and then twins, I presume the twins are boys? No, twin boy and girl, sorry, yeah. Twin boy and a girl, okay. So I had Grace in 2010 um, and then, yeah, twin boy and girl in 2011. Yeah, okay. There's an interesting thing you mentioned there, if we go back to your time in uh, uh, Jeff Gallup's office, that um, that he advertised the position. It doesn't, It doesn't. Uh, well, it, maybe it happened more in the past, but it's certainly not that often today. Today, the, it's, those advisory positions uh, often go to a politically-minded uh, uh, person. Um, were you? Was his office uh, staffed in that way, full of sort of more technocratic people, or, or, or did... Were you, a, were you a standout there? Well, um, I, I'd, I'd like to say I was a standout. I'll say that. Look, <laughs> Jeff, when I, I always remember, remember meeting Jeff Gallup for the first time. I was very nervous. And I didn't have, like, I, I didn't really have a background of politics. My parents were Southern Italian migrants. They weren't active in the political um, sphere in any way. That being said, my father was quite left-wing, but he was just left-wing. He wasn't a member of a political party or an organised group. So in my household, you know, the, the concepts of fairness and opportunity and how lucky we were to be in Australia with all these opportunities compared to where he grew up was always sort of instilled in me. So I was, left, I was very left-leaning. Um, but so I did, but I wasn't in ever any... Guild politics, school politics had no, was really sort of a novice at it. But when I worked in the Department of Finance in WA, when I transferred from Canberra, um, one of the fellow advisors in that office was a member of the Labor Party. She said, you should become a member of the Labor Party, which I did, but I wasn't a very active member. So I was a member of the active Labor Party when I went for the job with Jeff Gallup. But okay. it's, a, it's a long story. I never put that on my resume because it was like, well, you know, I didn't want that political affiliation to impact um, the job the, the job prospect. But when he interviewed me, you know, and we started talking microeconomic policy and economic policy, it was quite, it was very, very, uh, I suppose, exciting for me. And he was very keen to have a technocrat on board, someone that understood budgets and um, the finances. And when I joined, it was just fantastic. I used to write him economic updates, he used to love them. And it was a bit unusual. It was very unusual to have someone from Treasury picked up in a, in a leader of the opposition's office at the time. So it wasn't the norm. Is there any, um, it, I guess you got to, once you became Premier, you obviously got to work on um, some pretty substantial uh, reform initiatives. Any in particular stand out that you, were, that you had a hand in that you were proud of? Uh, in the, well, I was a member of the ERC at the time, so... So I was an, oh, not a member, sorry. I was an advisor that attended all the ER in expenditure review committee meetings. 
at that time, it was a very tough economic financial time. So in relation to reform, I've probably been involved more as a minister in directly implementing reform. But as an advisor, I think there were some significant decisions. For example, at that time, the funding and prioritisation of the Mandurah Rail Line I was involved in from an advisor point of view. So big infrastructure projects, some of the transformation of our regional ports like Geraldton. So as an economics advisor in that office, it was really a focusing on budgetary policy and helping guide the state back into surplus, but also advising on some significant infrastructure spending. You would have been there in an interesting time when the GST issue was the exact opposite for WA from what it is today. Was it around that, around that time WA was still um, receiving possibly a little bit more in GST than it collected and like, and then it's it, maybe from that time on, was it completely flipped over? Well, as I, I'm just going through my memory, but um, I was involved in the, in the opposition as part of the campaign against the GST. Yep. And one of the analysis I we did, and I always remember this analysis because I did it myself, you know, from scratch, was the impact of the GST on the state's finances because at the time, you know, the GST replaced a number of state levies and, and, and taxes. And at the time, we I remember the media statement we released that showed because of our high economic activity that we would, that we would be worse off under a GST because... We had um, we had the you know financial assistance grants. Then we had I think it was the the reallocation of the the fuel levy and so forth. And so what happened was initially we were get we were, we were okay and we had those transitional payments as people may recall for a number of years. But once those transitional payments fell away, our percentage started falling and falling and falling because we were assessed as a a you know like a state that had a huge capacity to collect revenue but not as great a need as as i think we ever really properly demonstrated so as a result as time wore on our gst allocation was whittled away to became what it was a ridiculous amount at the end before the gst fix in uh, malcolm turnbull's book he he describes uh the change that he that was implemented under his government and he says that there's maybe six people in uh, in all of Australia that understand the horizontal fiscal equalization process <laughs> that what goes into it and how the hell they come out come up with an output but yeah it sounds like uh, sounds like it it had no clarity was added over the over the subsequent 20 years yeah and i think the the constant the the way that's determined is trying to identify your capacity to raise revenue and then the needs of the state and i think we probably haven't ever really reflected, and there was some work done by Treasury to do this, really reflected the high, the level of need in WA in particular because of the sparse population, but also that um, to generate the mining income, we really actually spend a lot of money to help generate that, and I don't think we've ever demonstrated that well enough. Minister, that perspective you've had of being in um, in the permanent public service and then as a minister means that you're one of the rare people that's been both characters in Yes Minister. Um, both the, the the politician and the the senior bureaucrat. Do you think that that gives you, uh, uh, I guess, from your seat now, a different empathy for um, the the public servants that work for you, or a different relationship with them to what you'd have had you not had that background? Uh, probably because I know how the public service operates better, and I and I think I understand 
uh, I think, processes to achieve outcomes, um, in particular in your initial period as a minister, because we know that it sometimes takes a while to understand how to achieve outcomes and getting that balance right of achieving, you know, your political priorities, but understanding processes and making sure that everything is is covered is very important. Understanding the ERC process from my min- from my previous jobs, understanding those relationships was very important and continues to be important. I must say the other there are some things though that when we won government, the importance of good inter intergovernmental relations between the state and the federal government, I think is something that I've learned a lot over the re- recent years, the ability to work well with the other tier of government or the other tiers, but in particular the federal government, in my portfolio has been very important. And they're things that have probably been uh, learnt more in this job than in previous jobs. But like I said, I always think, you know, your your current job always, um, you always benefit from your previous jobs. So if I went into the public service, I'd probably be a better public servant because I know what uh, a minister needs. The other thing about being an opposition staff staff member um when i went in 1997 is you actually have to do it all yourself so you know even when i even though i worked in federal department of finance and federal department of treasury you know there were parts of the budget process state budget process i wasn't aware because i didn't really pull together the whole budget but when you're the one advisor working for the leader of the opposition who had to give all the economic or financial advice you became, I became so obsessed about knowing what every line of that budget paper meant that I became an expert on those budget papers. And um, that carries me through now and in, in understanding the whole sort of relationship. So in opposition, I spent years just absolutely getting across every detail of the budget papers. And you get to a level that not met, and even though people might come into these jobs with accounting or, or economic experience, if you don't understand how a budget's put together, a state or federal budget, then, you know, that's where you actually can let yourself down. But I know you, know, you, know, you just have to understand that how appropriations work, how the consolidated fund works. I mean, the whole ambit of things that are very, very unique to um, state budget processes. So we, we, we do want to discuss your, your, your current role, but the thing that's, uh, I think, Front of mind for everybody right now is obviously um, anything to do with COVID nineteen. We are recording in in mid June uh, for, for anyone listening, but um, yeah, it's obviously front of mind. Um, WA has done, uh, you know, has been one of the the very uh, high performing states in terms of limiting suppressing the the um, COVID nineteen outbreak. Um, how would you say WA is positioned relative to the other states, or just? on its own in terms of uh, the recovery coming coming out of this on the other end? Like many other states, we've done very well and I think a whole Australia has done really well and everyone across all governments and, of course, the entire community needs to be congratulated on the work we've done in relation to managing the health aspect. And WA, um, as I said, through its isolation has been... Isolation has been a big negative for WA in the past, but it's also been a very significant positive in relation to um, dealing with this, pan- with this pandemic. The Premier of WA, the Cabinet, made some early decisions about hard borders and um, some other key decisions, which I think have really um, put it well-placed from a health perspective. We've had very limited, if probably none, no community spread. We had There has been some local transmission, but we haven't seen sort of 
those um, the community spread that we've seen in some parts of Australia, but definitely what we've seen across the world. So the majority of our cases have been fully imported in the sense of um, people coming back from overseas or on cruise ships or um, now live live sheep ships as well. So that's another example. So I think we've done well. We've, as a result, we've been able to re relax many of our restrictions a lot earlier than other states. So I think generally we're well placed and I say in a comparative way because if you were to say five months ago that this would be you know, a great economy, um, no, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to accept it. But when you look about what's happening around the world, I think you have to be a realist in saying that we're doing, we're doing pretty well. Well, there's an, there's an interesting, there's a very interesting thing there, isn't there? Because we heard uh, an announcement just the other day about Vale in Brisbane having to close, I think three, maybe four of its um, iron ore mines, um, you know, very and, and WA through its success in restraining the um, COVID nineteen outbreak has managed to keep all its all its mine operations open. Is that is that the is that going to be how important is that going to be in terms of in terms of getting WA out to the other side? It's very important, and the fact that the resources industry has been able to um, keep going through this um, crisis is has really, in a sense, helped our financial bottom line because um, we're still able to export our iron ore in particular and our other resources. So that, in a sense, ex that trade impact, the fact that we've been able to continue the trade of resources has meant that our economy has been able to su sustain a level of activity. And um, in particular, the Premier is also Minister for State Development and the priority was really working with the resources sector to facilitate their 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 requirements which was including you know a bigger reliance on charter aircraft to isolate their workforce um they a number of them did their own testing which we facilitated because um we know that they've they worked really strongly to try and protect their workforce from the COVID, but also we knew that a strong continuing workforce would help our economy so that's been a, a significant um in a sense, benefit to WA. I mean, there's closed domestic borders, but also closed international borders. What does that do to the, that industry that in a lot of cases might be quite reliant on um, foreign labour? The people industry rather than the sort of product industry. So, yeah, so for example, our resources sector is predominantly um, sustained. Of course, the two areas and areas that have had a significant impact are tourism and, and international education, which mm. are both definitely felt an impact. Tourism, where, as we go through this recovery phase, the, we, we did have intrastate borders in place, so inability to move from one part of WA to another, they've now been removed. So what we're seeing now is um, some, a lot of activity in some parts of the state as internal tourism um, starts reoccurring. And we're, we've been talking, I've been talking to the airlines, we just had a to our industry um, update that in particular for many of the regional tourism towns, we believe that they will benefit from significant tourism activity going forward. Again, one of the things we wanted to do was maintain our construction activity. So we have maintained a level of um, civil construction and bringing forward projects too. So that's another aspect of the economy that's continued to drive some jobs and some money circulating in the economy. Minister, I'll come to the um, 
the continuation of the existing pipeline in the future in a moment. You, you spoke in one of your earlier answers about um, the relationship with different levels of government and the importance of working together and how to some extent you'd learnt that uh, on the job as a minister. That's kind of been on steroids over the last um, 12 weeks or so since the establishment of National Cabinet. And I know you've been meeting with fellow transport ministers on an almost weekly basis. Um, what's your reflections on how well the Federation and the structures in the Federation have responded to a, a crisis of this scale? Well, I think the National Cabinet's been vitally important in allowing Australia to deal with the pandemic as it has. So I think without that structure, um, that it wouldn't have been handled as well as my, my view. So I think that National Cabinet, that National Collaboration... But, it, I mean, I'll make this comment, though. Coming out of it appears, hard, you know, in a sense, a bit diff more difficult to keep that sense of collaboration and agreement. And we've seen some of the disputes between different states about borders and so forth. But I think um, the National Cabinet's been very good and now you've seen, of course, the abolition of COAG to replace it with a more sort of regular, um, informal, although... Normally what happens is, is informal structures end up being formal structures. That's what, happens. That's what bureaucracy does. But, um, but I think the more regular um, informal uh, updates, focusing on key areas of priority will benefit the whole nation. So, and from my perspective, I've always sought to really work well with the federal, federal government, in particular in transport, where we jointly fund a number of initiatives. So I think that has been... I think one of the reasons why Australia as a nation has done um, better than other nations. So you've you've brought forward some um, some expenditure, as I understand it, on Metronet and brought some contracts forward. Um, can you talk through some of the initiatives that you've um, uh, pursued as an to to accelerate expenditure and maybe as a form of stimulus? And and what other what other initiatives are coming up? Yeah, sure. So we looked at the whole range of pipeline of work. First of all, we had small to medium contractors ask tell us that they were concerned that the normal procurement process wouldn't allow them to retain their staff and have a pipeline of work. So we're talking the smaller projects um, up to about $20 million. What we did there is we engaged with industry, created a panel of contractors, and we are now allocating projects over the next 12 months. So they all have work over the next 12 months to to uh, enable them to keep their workforce employed and have some certainty going forward. Normally, they would all go out to a full procurement process and they would be sort of um, put out gradually and I think they would have created uncertainty. So that was one of our first initiatives. The second was look at our major projects, over $100 million or maybe even over $50 million of major road projects where we could, um, we, 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 so where we could bring forward any approvals processes and also procurement processes. So we're working through over, I think, a dozen of those um, and we've been able to bring forward the procurement for a number of key road projects. Uh, for example, a couple of major uh, um, grade, inter grade inter sorry, um, interchanges, um, also some major regional projects, $800 million project um, around Bunbury, uh, Albany Ring Road. So we're bringing forward that. On Metronet, we brought forward the procurement for a couple of other key projects and we're looking at how we also go forward on a number of other projects. So we've worked through the approvals processes and also 
the tender and procurement process to see how we can bring forward those projects. Do you have any sense for how that pipeline might be affected by all the various impacts of, of the COVID-19 pandemic in the sense that there's land use change, um, people, you know, more people working from home, and there's also, for some period, going to be much less migration. Do, do you see any um, direct impacts that, that are going to be felt over the long term, or is it really all just a temporary blip and we'll be back up and running as, as before? Well, people have different views on this. Um so they have a very, you know, different views about whether the work environment has changed as we know it. So I'm working on the current, I'm looking at some of the numbers that are coming through in relation to road usage and public transport usage, for example. So I'm working on, on the view that, our, for and, and it has sort of come true, road usage is, is now nearly at pre-COVID levels already in WA. So we've already hit, you know, about 95% of pre-COVID usage already. And that's with still a proportion of people working from home because, again, in WA, and this is very different to other states, um, the Premier a number of weeks ago said people who can come back to the office should come back to the office. And so from a government perspective, we're encouraging, encouraging people back to work if that's what they want to do. And also, but from the private sector, that's been a bit more gradual and so they're, they're, they're changing. But still with the percentage of people working from home, our road usage is already up to um, near near capacity near pre-COVID levels. And and you're something of a canary in the mine shaft there because the the eastern states, um, Queensland's probably a bit closer to you guys in terms of return to work, and then New South Wales and Victoria, some way back at the point we speak in, sort of uh, earliest June. So um, that's probably an early indication for what the return will, to work will look like elsewhere. Look at the three modes of transport, or the key three. What we've seen is, of course, people go back to the car because um, um, in particular with social distancing and other concerns. So we've seen people come back and also the city here has made some discounts about free parking and so forth. So people, it's been a bit economically um, viable or beneficial to drive. So we've seen significant um, cars back on our roads. I've seen cycling increase by 20%. So, again, the experience from other states around the world is, you know, individual sort of mobility um, um, devices, like cycling and so forth. We've seen an uptake. And public transport was the biggest, was the worst hit. At, um, and so we went down to 11% of pre-COVID activity um, within, a, I think, through the month of April. We're now climbing to back to over 60%. Of activity, so we're seeing that climb back, um, and my view is that will continue to climb as people get more comfortable with being back, you know, um, operating more normally in in society. So I have a view that things will. There may be some changes with some companies about working from home, but more generally, I sense that there'll be a willingness and a keenness to go back to normality if people can, is my impression of things. Can they? As in, in uh, while while we're under any kind of social distancing restriction, I, I know, for example, us here at PwC, you know, there's a, a third the number of desks available or some some small, some fraction, um, you know, limited access to lifts and everything like that. Is, is WA under, is, do you feel like that uh, will... Um, have an impact on the capacity of CBDs to actually accommodate as many staff as were there before? Well, 
it, I think there's, again, you know, every work environment's different and, you know, hot desking and all those sort of things that became oh. <laughs> popular for a very long period of time, I think there'll be a transition. I think there'll be, because the space required to home everybody in your office, to have everybody in your office is probably greater than is currently provided in a, in that sort of environment. But again, the requirements of social distancing in WA um, are very different to the other states. So again, we've moved even from the four square metre rule in cafes to a two square metre rule. So again, it's it's a bit difficult because we're a bit more advanced in the relaxation to make generalised comments. But I do think, like I said, more generally, there'll be a return to normality over time. It's uh Probably a good segue into uh, your interesting portfolio in terms of how it compares to other jurisdictions in that you've unified planning and transport within the the same ministerial portfolio and, and, and as I understand it, same department as well. Um, the it's uh, First of all, can you, can you talk us through the background of that and also what kind of impact it has on, on um uh, some of your transport project delivery, uh, some um, uh, and any any kind of planning outcomes that you that you deliver as a result of that combination. Yeah, they're not one department, but um, but see, so WA is quite unique. We've got all of planning and also also all of transport. So whether it's be road, rail, the operations, the infrastructure is all under one portfolio. So it is quite a significant portfolio. Uh, it's just it's very very useful in making both planning and transport decisions because, you know, I think there's been so many examples of the past where there might be a decision of planning which didn't quite understand what was happening on the roads or rail front and has led to either bad planning outcomes or sometimes uh, but the, um, well, the mis not the misuse, but the expenditure of public monies in a, in a way that didn't need to happen in you know in that sort of form. So can, can you talk through an, an an example where something in the past hasn't worked as ideally as as some of your decisions that you've you've had the chance to make currently? The example where in the, in the past the government sold off some land adjacent to what was going to be a rail hub, um, and a couple of years later that rail hub was eventuated and the government had to buy back the land about four times the price. So they're the type of things that um, are not, not a well-coordinated planning and transport effort will will do. So it's about good expenditure of public money. Why is it, you know, value for, you know, why is expenditure of public money? And also, again, you know, because as the Minister for Planning, there is significant, in a sense, power about how you plan a particular suburb or, or city. And through having the transport knowledge, you're able to make planning decisions which create much better communities and much better outcomes. So you, I think, avoid sometimes the waste of public money, but also you get much better planning and transport outcomes if you can make those decisions um, uh, jointly. Now, the other thing with my my shared portfolio, my two portfolios, so there's a lot a lot of interaction. Basically, every ma- every road decision has a land use um, impact, and every land use impact has a, a transport. Sorry, every land use outcome has a, a transport impact. So, they really work very very well together. So, is that the future? Are we all? Is should the rest of us? Should the rest of the states change? <laughs> well. 
I think every state has tackled things differently. I mean, I think from a portfolio, it's very big, though, I'll say that. And um, one of the things is I can see in other states those that have separated infrastructure provision from the service provision, which I can see that makes a bit of sense. But um, I think planning and transport go very well together. And maybe just with reference to Metronet, just talk us through, it seems to me like Metronet is the distillation of, of combining those two portfolios because I've, I very rarely hear it spoken about as a rail program. It's much more of a city shaping uh, type program. Yeah, so as part of Metronet, we're building up to 18 new stations. And so as part of planning for those stations, we're planning the land use outcomes around those. So... Um, for example, for all the station designs, we're working as part of the design of the station, actually developing a plan around that station. So where the, where the um, not where the car parks, buses, but more where the housing, commercial and other prospects are going to be. So we're trying to bring that to the, to the in a sense, working on those together. For example, there's been a lot of discussion in WA that when we build a new station in like a, a new suburb, we built a station with a massive car park around it and we're actually not getting the benefit from the residential or commercial activity we can we can we could um, undertake so a number of our new stations the car park is either a different form multi-story for example in a couple of cases or it's it's allocated in a different area to facilitate the best um, residential and commercial um, developments. So just some of those basics where the design of the station is in the context of how it feeds the community rather than just how it feeds the the trains, the operation of the trains, because that's been a big problem in the past is that station design hasn't really, in WA and probably in other places, hasn't really looked to integrate the station into the community. And even, um, even where your bike paths are going to be, or your walkability, all that's been brought into the station design. A few of the eastern states uh, have announced or foreshadowed potentially using this, um, this the COVID nineteen period or crisis as a as a a chance to implement some major some major economic reforms. A lot of the, there's a lot of discussion about replacing stamp duty with land tax. Uh, so there might be and some other some other. Uh, favorites of this podcast like road user charging as well do you see that um do you think that now is a good opportunity and and without necessarily announcing it although feel free to is wa looking at at anything similar um not on those fronts we have um announced significant planning reform under my 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 portfolio so plan a lot of states have pathways for significant projects and trying to streamline some approvals processes that reform is quite significant, probably the most significant reform in that planning space for a number of years and picking up the concept of a, a new pathway for significant projects. That's currently in the parliament um, to be debated. It got through the lower house last week and two or two weeks ago. And we're looking at managing it through the upper house this next couple of weeks. That's probably something we've already brought in and that's significant reform, facilitating new private sector investment and that's what they're the types of reforms in particular that I'm looking at is uh, reducing, you know, reducing red tape, but, you know, really trying to streamline our approvals process to facilitate timely private sector investment. And you've done that as a result of the current 
um, political window, I guess? Yeah, or no, well, there's actually a new COVID. It's like a post-COVID significant project pathway that lasts for 18 months and then that drops away. So it's very much related to the economic recovery post-COVID. Are there any other changes that you've made um, that you think, sort of the short-term tactical changes that have been made, do you think should persist? Well, we'll see. I mean, look, these are very, in WA planning, like I think all states, but in WA it's a very sensitive issue and there's very differing views. I'm not sure whether we're going to get it through the upper house. I hope we do. But um, I think we'll see how it, go- how it goes. And oh, we made a number of other planning decisions. So, so for example, we extended the time that you had to um, implement a, a, to develop a project by two years. So existing development applications were all extended by two years just to make sure that if a project didn't go ahead because of a COVID, COVID impact, they still had more years to um, fulfil their or to implement their development um, approval. So there, as part of our reform, there's a post-COVID pathway for significant projects. Then there's a myriad of other reforms about supporting small business, changing their operations and reducing red tape across the entire planning portfolio. They're the long-lasting ones and they're the ones currently subject to parliamentary and other debate. There's um, uh, an inevitable in, in in large part temporary but potentially a long-term drop in um, uh, taxation revenue uh, as, you know, while the global economy is, is slower. Although in WA that might not be the case with a very high iron ore price to, to some extent. Um, do, you, do you think that uh, WA will need to maybe use some more PPPs than in the past uh, to fund some some of these projects or finance some of these projects, or is it is it is that not going to be affected? I don't think it's going to be affected. Um, we had a very tight fiscal strategy when we won the election. From our perspective, we we think our budget setting is pretty strong to allow us to fund our projects. The other thing I think there was a change in accounting standards too um, about eighteen months ago that changed how many of these um, in a sense non-government funded um, projects appeared on your on your balance sheet and net debt anyway, which impacted the ratings agency's views on things anyway. So some of the benefits of some of these some of these finance structures that have allowed government to enter into long-term arrangements and not reflecting net debt have now disappeared anyway. I'm very conscious of your time, but we always finish these podcasts with the, the same questions of all of our guests, um, which is what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? Oh, rail lines, because as a minister, there, I mean, roads are great, but rail lines are so exciting. Um, and they, I've had the opportunity to be part of planning and delivering, I think, so far five. And that's a huge opportunity that no other ministers had in WA. So the opportunity to help design the route, the station, the land use around it is, it's just a, it's a dream come true. So they're very, very exciting. And also, our, I think as part of that, our rail car manufacturing plan, where we're bringing back rail car manufacturing to WA and looking at the new design of the trains is pretty, pretty exciting. So it's the, um, it's the, in fact, it's the, the, the two parts of your portfolio, right? It's the, it's the transport piece, but it's the, the land use outcome and the, 
city shaping piece. It all ha- you know, all be delivered, especially the land use outcomes, which do take time. But you know, in ten or fifteen years' time, just what sort of um, hub of activity, the local amenity, the the beautiful sort of communities that are going to be produced from this, I think. Uh, uh, it's something that inspires me. I know, as I said, I won't be able to oversee it all because these things take many governments or many decades in some time. But I know in a future career or in a future in future life, I'll go past and see what has been the outcome of our work. And that'll be very, very exciting. If you change portfolios to energy, is a, is a wind farm going to be your, fa- your next favourite <laughs> type of infrastructure? <laughs> uh, I like transport. I like bridges. I like bridges too, actually. We there built a beautiful go. bridge over here, Managarrat Bridge, which is just beautiful. But, um, yeah, no, I want to keep these portfolios as long as I can. But I know that, you know, there'll be a time when I'm not Minister for Planning and Transport, but um, I'm pretty excited being that right now. I would say that on, I haven't done the analysis, but I think the most popular answers to that question have been bridges and tunnels. But then you, get, you, you scratch beneath the surface and some people say, well, like tunnels when they're in operation and others like bridges when they're in construction. So... Everybody's got their own little quirks on their favourite sort of infrastructure, but I think your one your one fits quite well with the portfolio minister. Thank you very much for for spending the time with us today and um, telling us all about yourself and, and what's happening in in WA now and into the future. So, minister, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to send those to us, either to myself or Ilya. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bierschen, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Player.